This audio recording is of our regularly scheduled service, March 6, 2016. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. But if you open up your uh, Bibles to the book of Matthew, that's the first book in the New Testament. And we are returning to a study that we began some time ago. We're in Matthew chapter 26, and I am going to read actually just um, a few sections out of this chapter, and we'll do so with, with the next three chapters or so over the next few weeks. I'm going to read verse 1 and 2, and then kind of skip over to verse 17 to kind of set the stage for um, understanding what's going on. Um, This is uh, the end of uh, Jesus' life. This is the last week of Jesus' life on earth. Uh, He has just spent some time in Jerusalem, uh, going in and out of the temple teaching, if you recall, um, about the end times, about judgment, about the signs of uh, the coming of the end of the age, and things of that nature. In verse 1 and 2, it says this, When Jesus had finished... All these sayings he said to his disciples, after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Those two days pass, and in verse 17 it says, now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my, I'll keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? said to him, You have said so. And now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and we had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is God's Word. Now, today's sermon is a bit of an introduction to uh, what's going to be our Easter series for the month of March uh, called God is Greater. By introduction sermon, I mean it's going to maybe feel a little more teaching, but it, it's to help us understand uh, what's actually happening in these passages. As I said, we concluded our study of the first 25 chapters of Matthew, which you can get online and, and get some booklets to help you study that if you're interested. And that was uh, We ended that in the fall last year, and because I didn't want to preach Easter at Christmas, we took a pause, started to return here um, in March to, to finish up. And so we will. We're going to go through chapters 26, 27, and 28, which I said is the last week of Jesus' life. And just by way of reminder about who Matthew is, because there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and and they all give us a a different picture of Jesus, if you will, from a different perspective, though the same story. And Matthew was formerly a very corrupt and successful tax collector. And today we don't 
necessarily have things super similar to tax collectors, maybe lawyers, IRS agents or whatever, um, with stereotypically speaking. But Jews at that tax men as like the example of a sinner. Like if you want to talk about a sinner, let's use tax collectors as the example. They were typically men um, of Jewish descent who were employed by the Romans uh, to extort people for money. And the Romans viewed them um, as tools uh, to, they really saw them no better than brothel keepers. I mean, they were pretty slimy. So everyone thought tax collectors were pretty bad. But Jesus called a tax collector, uh, and Matthew followed Jesus, responded to his call to follow me, and left everything that he knew, including a very lucrative uh, job, trusted Jesus with his life, and eventually um, was martyred uh, for his faith in Ethiopia. Now, Matthew is a Jew, and I say that because uh, Luke, for example, is not and, and he writes differently, uh, particularly to Greeks. Matthew is Jewish, and he wrote to Jews. And he is writing to prove that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And I try not to assume that as I'm preaching, you understand even, like everyone knows, oh, Messiah. Of course, I know what Messiah is. It's interesting how much we don't know much about such things. In Matthew's Gospel, he uses a phrase, this was to fulfill um, I think like Sims. And the reason why is because he is trying to not just prove Jesus is the Messiah, but prove that he is this promised Savior that fulfilled all of these Old Testament um, passages and promises that came uh, for over thousands of years. Now, again, most people don't know what Messiah means, though most people will acknowledge they Jesus is. And by most people, I mean, believe it or not, in, in all of history, Uh, Since Jesus' time, most people will acknowledge that there was a man uh, who was a Galilean peasant named Jesus of Nazareth who was really born and really lived. Uh, Most acknowledge that. Most will acknowledge that um, this same Jesus of Nazareth, after ministering for three years, the area that he lived, um, he was delivered uh, by his own people, that being Jews, for uh, an illegal trial. And most will acknowledge that this same Jesus of Nazareth was executed by Gentiles, namely Romans, on a cross, which was their kind of typical and and, and, uh, very um, ugly form of what they consider the slime of slime in terms of criminals. Now, without any kind of Jewish backdrop, not to mention without believing in the resurrection, but put that aside for a second, and and not without a a Jewish backdrop of, of kind of context of culture and history, most people are going to misunderstand what's happening with Jesus during his suffering. That's what the Passion means, right? The suffering week, the Passion week. So most will read 26 through 28 and just kind of be a little clueless and probably come out um, believing, as most do, that this was an unjust murder of a really good and humble teacher. And they will probably conclude that Jesus' death was just this terrible accident that, you know, was avoidable. And so, I would argue that's the very wrong conclusion. If you read um, Peter, uh, he is the uh, leader of the early church in the book of Acts, and he does his first sermon in Acts chapter 2, never preached before, and he preaches and like thousands of people come to faith, and his 
sermon was really simple, which brings great comfort to me as I read it, because you just don't have to be complicated. But he later teaches a couple different times. In Acts 4, he says something that uh, we often overlook. Uh, It's a very powerful, powerful passage. Uh, Verse 27, here's what Peter says, one of the best friends that Jesus had. um, Says, truly, speaking about Jesus and the whole uh, crucifixion that um, had occurred, truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, Piles, and the peoples of Israel. So everyone involved in Jesus' death, Herod, uh, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, Jews, Rome, all of them, he says, they were all gathered against Jesus. And then it says, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And we know what took place was of Jesus Christ. And what it says there is that the death of Jesus Christ was arranged by God. It didn't surprise God. It wasn't an accident to be avoided. In fact, we read later later in the New Testament that Jesus willingly went to the cross. He chose to go to the cross. And the question is, why? What did all that mean? Context, we will really misunderstand what happened. And today's text is where Jesus begins to explain to his disciples what it all means. Now, Matthew, it's important to know as you read our Bible that Matthew, as I said, is Jewish and he's writing to Jews, which means he doesn't accept Jewish customs. And so, unless, like Luke, for example, does. Luke isn't writing to a people, he's writing to Greeks. They don't have complete familiarity with all the Jewish customs. And so he'll go into explanations, otherwise Gospels, much longer. But Matthew doesn't. He kind of skips over it because he assumes his audience understands. And so, unless you're Jewish or, or have read a lot of the Old Testament, often approach the Scriptures with a lot of ignorance. And so it's important to get a backdrop, which is what I want to help us understand in terms of what Jesus is doing, what customs he's observing, and why. Because what he says is make connections to these things that help us understand. And the death of Jesus, important to understand, didn't begin on a hill called Gal where he died. It actually was planned, according to Ephesians 1, before anything was created. And I would argue that it began to unfold in a garden called Eden, which is timely and helpful, not planned, but that's how God works, that we're coming out of Genesis. Because you need to understand Genesis and really the rest of the Old Testament to kind of get a picture of Jesus' saying here. And so, really briefly, we understand, because we've all been there together, that in Genesis... Those first 11 chapters we just went over, we read that God created this good world, and we know it's good because he said so. And God, being a pretty good evaluator of all things, says this is beautiful, it's wonderful, and then he creates men and women together. He says, look, Adam and Eve, this is the pinnacle of my creation. This is very good. They're going to represent me. It's awesome. And they enjoy fellowship together. Until, that is... They, Adam and Eve, believe this lies apart from God's word, apart from God's ways. And they believe that lie, and they disobey. And sin enters the world, and we know that God, in order to ensure they don't remain in their brokenness, remain in the, in the shame and the guilt that sin has now brought into the world, remain really ultimately uh, condemned to die, He shoves them out of the garden. 
which feels like, ugh, what is he doing? But God says, I don't want them to eat of the tree of life, lest they stay like this. And before he pushes them out in the wilderness, before he pushes them out to what is chaos, he makes a promise to them. He says, you know what? One day, a Savior will come. A child will be born. And that child will conquer Satan, conquer sin, conquer death. There will be a child born. That's the first promise. And from their time outside the garden, things go from bad to worse, though. And Genesis 6 reveals what happens if God... So we wonder, what if God didn't intervene? What if God didn't show grace? What if God just said, okay, let's see if men can figure it out. If you want to know that answer, you look at Genesis 6. And Genesis 6 shows us that if men are left to themselves and God never intervenes, things get bad. They get completely corrupt from the inside out that mankind has is wicked and evil and it's just ugly and God sees it all and says, I need to wipe this clean. And that's what he does. Grieved and angry at the wickedness of men, he decides to destroy the world, but he does show grace and he chooses a 600-year-old man named Noah. He tells him to build a big boat, tells him to fill it with every animal, Tells him that he and his wife and his kids and their wives will enter into it. And the flood comes and wipes it clean and we read about that. And what we see is that God's wrath is real. We see that God's justice is good. And we see that the flood is what men's sin asks. But we see God is also loving. And after the flood, he hangs up his war bow, right, in the sky, He says, I I will no longer aim this at you. I will no longer destroy the world as I did. In fact, in making a promise to Noah, he says, I'm going to save the world. It's another promise. I'm going to restore creation. I'm going to restore all relationships. Well, in time, Noah's family proves to be just as messed up as his ancestors. His descendants, following after Nimrod, attempt to build a godless city to themselves with a mosaic of their own spirituality. Godless, but spiritual. And in love, we saw last week, God brings a halt to their building project, knowing that if they continue in this, they will go back to Genesis 6. It'll get worse. They'll do more evil, and they will get fraud. And so the rest of of Genesis, as the people are scattered because their languages are confused, the rest of Genesis, from Genesis 12, really till the end at Genesis 50, is the story of one man's family, a man named Abraham. This is why in the Old Testament, it's always God describing himself as God God of Isaac and God of Jacob. That's obviously father, Abraham, son, and grandson. And the story begins to unfold. And God promises this one man, we'll later see when we return to Genesis and Genesis 12, He promises Abraham, just as He had promised Noah, just as He had promised Adam and Eve, look, I'm going to fix all things. In fact, through your family, Abraham, I'm going to bless the world. He makes promise after promise after promise. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, God changes his name to Israel. And Israel, who is Jacob, Jacob is Israel, Israel is Jacob, 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. 
And at the end of Genesis, you see one of those sons is kind of an arrogant little punk. Through a series of events, is exiled, if you will, or separated from his family. And he finds himself in Egypt. And events, a lot of suffering, a lot of pain, a lot of brokenness, a lot of betrayal. He finds himself, by God's grace, second in command of Egypt. And he is the one who basically ensures Egypt is protected from a great famine that comes. This is one of Abraham's you know, great-grandsons. Positioned in such a way that his family that had sent him away, his brothers, his father who didn't know about it, are saved from the famine. And they all come down into Egypt. And they're there together. And the Pharaoh's excited to have them. You always think of Pharaoh as like horrible. Pharaoh loved Joseph. Pharaoh loved his family. He's like, you guys, you take the best land. Take that Goshen land. That's like awesome land. You take that, have your people grow. It'll be amazing. And eventually that Pharaoh dies. Joseph dies. And after hundreds of years, forgotten. Who's Joseph? What'd he do? And the Pharaoh that's in power at that point looks at the Hebrew people, right? The Hebrews. He says, man, these people are really like massive now. And we got enemies just north of there. Like, what, what if they join our enemies? You know, we should slave them before they do. So he enslaves all the Hebrew people. And they become slaves in Egypt for upwards of 400 years. And eventually they cry out to God because of the suffering. Because they get to a point where they start slaughtering their children. Throwing them in the Nile River because they're just getting too big. But this is when God begins to fulfill His promise to save. And as a demonstration of His power and maybe His sense of humor, He calls an 80-year-old fugitive shepherd named Moses. Moses. And He says, I want you to lead my people out of Egypt. I want, to go, I want you to go back to that fugitive because you murdered somebody and you were educated and you grew up in Pharaoh's house. I want you to go back there and talk to what is probably one of your relatives who's Pharaoh now, and I want you to tell him to let my people go. Not you in an army, not you in, in some armor. I want you to take this wood staff with your shepherdedness and go and just tell him to let my people go. I, pff, are you kidding me? I don't know how to talk. He's like, who gave you the tongue? Good point. I, I don't know what to do. He's like, you're going to go and you're going to save my people. He goes, and the Exodus is the story of how the Hebrew people were supernaturally delivered from slavery in Egypt. And that whole story not just about delivering God's people from slavery in Egypt. The whole story is to point us how one day God is going to save us from slavery to our own sin. And it's going to look exactly the same. And how does he do it? Oh, he does it in an epic, like, disaster movie scale. He shows up and he's like, if you won't let my people go, I'm going to start unleashing plagues on you. Because when he comes and he says, God says, they had lots of gods. He's like, I don't know the name of this God. It's like, okay, let me tell you God's name. First, middle, and last. Ten plagues. And the plagues are devastating. Remember, this is the greatest empire on the earth. The wealthiest great empire on the earth at the time. And they are utterly destroyed. First plague, the entire Nile River of which their whole economy and livelihood is based on turns to blood. Not just turns red. Turns to blood. Second 
plague, frogs cover every inch of land and into homes. That would be fun to come home to. Third plague, gnats and lice cover everything. Animals, children, adults, but not the Hebrews. Fourth plague, flies swarm eating them like the protein you get with the bug parts in your cereal. They're there, you know it, it's all over, it's nasty. Fifth plague, all the livestock just dies. Sixth plague, boils begin to break out. Constant blisters all over their body. Seventh plague, hailstones start, and anything that's outside and not covered, animal, human, is killed. Eighth plague, locusts come and eat all their, their vegetation, which is pretty much their livelihood. And then finally, the ninth plague comes and the darkness falls. And then the tenth plague comes, which connects it most clearly with Matthew. And what's the tenth plague? It's very different than the other plagues. Just before the final plague, God says, all right, Moses, I want you to do something, and I want your people to do it forever. I want they celebrate something every year. He institutes what's called the Passover. It's a and it's the same meal that Jesus is celebrating with his disciples, his Jewish disciples here in Matthew 26. According to Exodus 12, God says, here's what I want you to do. Each household is to go find a, a, a lamb, an unblemished lamb, and I want you to slaughter it. And I want you to take some of the blood, and I want you to wipe it across um, the uh, doorposts and the lintels. That's the top part of the door. Cover the door with blood. Then you will feast and you will eat, and he tells them a couple other things to do. God says that um, I'm going to pass through all of Egypt, and I'm going to kill the firstborn, every household. And when I see the blood on the door of your households, I will accept that lamb as a substitute for you, and I will move on. I will not kill you because of the blood that you sit under. I will pass over your home. And so God does just that. And you can imagine the devastation for the Egyptians, even the Pharaoh's own son, who are killed in one evening. And a cry goes out, and Pharaoh relents, and he says, get out of here, take your people, go. And even some of the Egyptians leave with them. Mountain. We know the story goes to the Red Sea, and and we don't need to talk about that, but he eventually leads them to Mount Sinai, the base of the mountain, God's mountain, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. It's called different things. And this is where he will bring his people out to worship him, and this is right before on the way to the land that he promised Ham, back in Exodus or Genesis 12. And God comes down in a cloud and thunder. He's just like, whoa, there's God on top of this mountain. And the people are like, Moses, you go talk to him because we don't want to die. And he goes up and he's gone for a long time. And there he meets with God. And Joshua's assistant came up partly with him. He gives them the law. And it's like, excuse me, it's like a bridegroom coming to his bride. And he says, this is going to be the contract we have. This is our wedding vows, if you will. And beginning with the Ten Commandments, which you're probably familiar with, he gives over 600 commands, which becomes what we know as the Mosaic Law, or the Old 
And this is the law that is conditional. What do I mean? It's a, it's a conditional promise. God says, look, if you obey what I'm telling you to do, you will be blessed. And if you disobey what I'm telling you to do, you will be cursed. These are the terms of our relationship. The terms of our covenant. These are our values. God also implies that they'll probably fall short. They're going to screw up. They're going to sin intentionally and unintentionally. And so He provides within that law this thing called the priesthood. There'll be a guy that goes in there after cleansing himself. He will make sure that makes sacrifices. He'll take lambs and bulls and different things and, and they will be sacrificed for the sins of the people. Why would you do that? Because he wants to cover the sins for the death that is required, but he will receive a substitute. And he will do that so that he can have relationship, but it will be temporary. He will preserve the relationship through temporary substitutes and temporary righteousness, if you will. He says this is what it's going to be. And Moses comes down, and through a series of events, he finally reads the covenant to the people multiple times. And they receive it, and then it's signed. In Exodus 24, it says, Moses came and he told the people all the words and all the rules. And the people answered with one voice and said, all the words of the Lord too. We agree. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood from the offering. So they had sacrifices there. He took some of the blood. And he put it in the basins. And then half the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant, right? Covenant. Same thing that Jesus talking about, Matthew 26. This yeah. He takes the book of the covenant and he reads it again in the hearing of the people, it says. And he said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient, the people say. And what does Moses do? He took the blood and he throws it on the people. Throws it on there. You say you're going to do it? All right. Agreed. Covenant is signed in blood. You see, before there was a new covenant signed in blood, which we will read about or have read about, there was an old covenant signed in blood. And so from Exodus to Malachi, what happens? I thought I was going to go through every book, didn't you? I didn't. Exodus to Malachi. Okay, Old Testament done. Woo! What happens? The Old Testament is that man cannot make good on God's covenant. They can't do it. They fall short. They are, surprise, really sinful. And even though they try, and oftentimes they don't try real hard, they can't keep God's covenant. They simply are unable to obey. Time and give themselves to idolatry. But God, time and time again, comes to them. And it echoes 2 Chronicles 7, which Chronicles is a book in the Bible. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from the heaven. I'll forgive their sin. I will hear their land. He's like, if they would just, I would forgive them, but they don't. And the law, the old covenant that had promised a way of life, all it does, all it proves to do, Paul says this in Romans, is show them how sinful they are. All it did was reveal how ugly that their sin really was. They could not, could not, could not ship with God. And just as we saw in Genesis, things go from bad to worse. Kings rise, kings fall. And God again says, don't worry, there's going to be a king who comes who will lead, who will protect who will serve and who will honor my name. There'll be a king, I promise. And so they're always looking, right, for these promises. Okay, a seed is coming. 
A king is coming. God had made good on His promise to punish Israel, though, when they disobeyed. And ultimately what happens, Israel gets conquered and exiled several times. And it's during those dark times that Apaniah comes. He's called the lamenting prophet because he cried a lot over the fact that his people didn't listen. And this is what Jeremiah said, which brings it full circle. He said, behold, the days are coming. And when we talk about prophet, we're talking about God. It says, declares the Lord. He's speaking for God. The days are Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob or Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. What covenant are you talking about, Jeremiah? On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband and a faithful one, declares the Lord. But this I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. He says, it's going to be a new one. I'm going to put my law within them. I'm going to write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will be and will remember their sin no more. Which brings us to the thing that Jeremiah is talking about that Jesus is now instituting. The new covenant. And the reasons for the new covenant are obvious. This is Jesus right here, Matthew 26, with his Jewish disciples, a people who has said, Through you, the world will be blessed. It's explaining and interpreting everything that's about to happen before it happens. See, Jesus is the man, as you go through the Gospels, he's the one that John the Baptist watched walk. And he said, Oh, goes the Lamb. There goes the Lamb that will take away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. Now, Joe Gentile listening to that would be like, guys, a lamb? That's weird, right? Joe Jew, not there is a Joe Jew, but Jew, right? He's sitting there. He understands what he's like. What? The Lamb? The Lamb that takes away the sin? The Passover Lamb? Jesus, when, when He is crucified, He is the one who will die on a cross and above Him a sign will be put by Pontius Pilate that the Jews hate. And what does it say? King of the Jews. And now He gathers here Passover celebration. And at this Passover celebration, He says, here's a new covenant which you go, that's heresy for a Jew to say. Unless he's more than just a Jewish man. He's making a greater promise came and for and as God for his people. And if you read Matthew 26 very carefully, particularly verse 26, it says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup. And when he, had, he gave it to them, like the focus of the entire passage is on what Jesus is doing. The disciples are doing nothing but receiving. This is the nature of the new covenant. The new covenant is not about something men 
must do or not do. It is about something God done. See, salvation is not God's work with us. It's not God's work for us. I'm sorry, it is God's work for us, and it translates to being God's work in us. And it's like the lamb used in the Passover, Jesus becomes, and this is what he's declaring right there, becomes the substitute for our atonement. What does that even mean? You drop the word atonement, all right? Sin's covered, sin's atoned for. What does that even mean? Let me spell it out as clearly as I can because people have such a misunderstanding of what faith in Christ means. Jesus stood before God, before God, for those who put their faith in him, as our representative in two ways. He assumes responsibility for obedience to the law that is good. In other words, There's a life I was supposed to have lived. And the law clearly lays it out. And we can try and pretend as if of good. By, well, I followed these rules. That's what the Pharisees did. Well, I didn't commit adultery. I haven't murdered. I haven't lied. Right? What does Jesus say to them? You don't get it. You maybe didn't commit adultery, but did you lust? Maybe you didn't murder. Did you hate? Guilty. Guilty is what he reveals to them. Even in their seemingly perfect rule following, they were guilty. If not guilty of some rule, guilty of pride, reeked of it. Jesus represents and takes my responsibility for the fact that I was supposed to be obedient to the law of God. And because I can think, he stands and takes responsibility for the penalty that I am owed for my disobedience. See, the gospel, let me just make it really simple for you. Here's the gospel in four words. Jesus in my place. Jesus in place. See, the promise of the new covenant is not that we develop a righteousness for ourselves. That was kind of, I don't want to say the trick because the old covenant was good, but that's what the old covenant made you to believe. Well, if I do these things... I'll I'll develop this righteousness and I'll be good enough to be with God. Or I'll earn it. See, the old covenant basically revealed that we're incapable of doing that. The new covenant says, no, you're not going to develop some righteousness apart from God and then be deemed good. He's actually going to go over here and develop righteousness. He's going to create right, create the perfection that you could never obtain yourself and go, here, I'm going to give it to you in Christ. As Keller, I think, so aptly said, the gospel, the good news, like the proclamation, that's what the gospel, it's a message. It's not like, here are your instructions about what to do for, you know, to be a good person. The gospel message is a declaration of what has been done. A proclamation of news. And he says, it doesn't matter what you... This is what the gospel is not that. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you've been good. The gospel says, it doesn't matter if you've been good as long as you believe in Christ as your Savior. And when you believe Christ as your Savior, when you acknowledge that I actually deserve that penalty and I need that righteousness, and when you believe Jesus has done it, you'd be blown away by what does to your goodness. 
Now it changes your disposition towards people and disposition towards God and disposition towards sin from the inside out. It's almost as if he writes the law in our hearts and we have new desires. What said was going to happen? In fact, you read Ezekiel, right? Because Jeremiah said, oh, I'm going to give them you know, a, a new covenant. I'm going to put my spirit in them. And then Ezekiel says it too. He says, I'm going to give a new heart. Take that heart of stone out, put a heart of flesh in, starts beating. And you know what else Ezekiel says in the next verse? I'm going to put my spirit so that they will be able to obey. They will want to obey. Doesn't mean you obey perfectly. You may fall flat on your face. But Jesus will say, I forgave that. So get up. This is why Paul can write some of the most beautiful of the New Testament, in Romans 8. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Price has been paid. Law has been fulfilled. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has, catch this, God has done, not man is able to do, not man attempted and kind of got close, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is why Hebrews 7 can say that Jesus is a guarantor of a better covenant. A greater promise. And you go, why is it greater? Let me just be really Simple in how it's greater. First and foremost, Jesus makes the covenant himself. And Remember I said, the disciples sitting there hearing Jesus go, hey, it's going to be a new covenant. Like They'd be like, you can't, you, you can't do that. You can't just make a new covenant in the name of God for God. You can if you're God. We need to understand this. Jesus, it's important that Jesus is fully God. He is the one making the covenant. So therefore, he is the one who has been sin judge coming down and saying, I know I've been wrong, but I'm going to make it right. You go, that doesn't make any sense. I know, grace is pretty radical. But then, he is fully man. What does that matter? God and man, two parties in any contract, two parties in any covenant, he represents them both. Jesus fully God, man. Right? He is second Adam. Everything Adam was supposed to be, he did it perfectly sinless. And here is God. Wait a second. Jesus God, Jesus man, do you realize that Jesus is essentially making a covenant with himself? God's coming down and saying, you know what? I want to have a relationship with you, but I'm going to make a contract and I tried. I knew it was going to fail because you are really sinful. So I'm going to go ahead and uphold both sides of the covenant. And when you fail, I'm going to do your part. And I'm going to do my part. And then I'm going to invite you to believe that. I'm going to invite you in. But he isn't just more than that, right? The whole Old Testament, the whole priesthood, whole sacrifice. That's okay, I know you're going to be tempted to believe that's like a one-time thing, but I'm going to be a priest unlike any other priest. All the other priests died. It's like me, I'm going to be a perpetual priest. I'm going to permanently intercede for you on your behalf. I'm going to permanently stand before God so that you can come in confidence, drawing closer to the Lord, and him going, yep, forgiven, forgiven forgiven. You're my child. I'm going to delight in you. He is constantly talking to God the Father about us. 
And God the Father, through Christ, is constantly delighting in us as his children because Jesus is resurrected. He is the permanent priest. He is the perpetual priest. He is there constantly, always making intercession for me. Jesus was more than the priest. He was the Lamb of God. He was the one who was sacrificed. And like, what does that even mean? Like, thank you for being the Lamb of God. That's great. Let, let me like try to make it as clear as I can, though I'm sure there's huge books written on it that make it much clearer. The blood of Christ is what the blood of Christ is what empowers the covenant. The blood of Christ is what forgives my sin, past, present, and future. And if Jesus was just a man, that would be good enough for one sin of one man. But Jesus is God. You ever wonder why crucifixion? Like, why not, like, you know, come lethal injection in the 20th century? Why not hanging? Why not drug behind a chariot? Do you know what crucifixion does? Bloody. And a gift of what it was like to sacrifice a lamb. And when you see that blood coming down, know this. That's not just a man's blood. That's God's blood. And because it's God's blood, it is of infinite weight. And infinite richness so that infinitely our sin, regardless of the nature of sin, regardless of the number of sin, it covers it all to the extent where Christ can say, it is finished. And it will be finished tomorrow, and it will be finished the day after that, and the day after that, because it has nothing to do with you or me, and everything to do with what he has done for us. He's simply inviting us in to believe. That's the gospel. That is what these three chapters are about, as you see the end of Jesus' life, it's about God securing relationship and basically going, yeah, stand back for a second. I'm going to take care of this, and I'm going to invite you in to believe it. That's what this is about. You realize, like, this is what Jesus was doing. And we do this every Sunday, and I don't know if we think about it the way I'm telling you we need to think about it. We kind of go through the motions, don't we, at times? We come to the table like, this is the table of the new covenant. This is our response to what the news has been proclaimed. Do I, do I believe that? And if you don't believe, I would tell you that the bread and cup is not for you. It's nothing you should receive because you haven't surrendered. I would invite you and encourage you to, to think and see the offer of forgiveness that God has given you. The opportunity to be free of your guilt. The opportunity to be cleansed of your shame. To place your hope on Him knowing that you know, trying to save yourself is not going to work. But for those who do believe in Christ, is for all of us who desire to live under the greater promise where your acceptance before God, your relationship with your Creator is secured not by what you achieve, by what you believe. Not by what you achieve, by what you believe. Close by saying, you probably heard the term the Eucharist. It's a very um, 
historically church way to describe the Lord's table, communion. Together, the, the word means thanksgiving, but if you separate the word out, it's made up of two words, actually. One is good, like you, E-U, eulogy, good word. Good, and then carissa, beautiful, or grace. It's where we get our English word, caress. And so, as fluffy as it might sound, but we need a little fluffiness sometimes. Together, the, the Eucharist is this good caress. Which means that as I do believe, as you come to what you experience is a reminder, but also some reality of the risen Lord embracing us and assuring us again and again and again of his love and his forgiveness. Who doesn't want to be reminded of it? And I'll tell you why we need to be reminded of it. Because we walk out these walls and we listen to the promises of the world. And we allow the promises of sin to attract us and to define us. And ultimately, by God's grace, we find them fully unsatisfying. But some of us will still listen to the promises of what we'll call righteousness. Believing that somehow my relationship with God is maintained by how good I am how much I read my Bible, though I believe you should. How much you pray, though I believe you should. But that doesn't dictate God's love for you. And when you know that, trust me, you're going to dive into prayer and dive into God's Word. That's why we sit on the, that my salvation is secure in Christ. It was obtained by Christ. It is held by Christ. Those are the promises we sit on. Especially when you go out and people won't, won't tell you who you are or your flesh rears up and says, this is who you are. You say, no, Jesus tells me who I am, and I believe in him. Let's pray. Holy Father, pray that we'll be humbled, that we'll be humbled by the weight of our own brokenness, that we'll be humbled by our weakness, but that we'll be awed by what lengths you went to to restore relationship with us. Lord, the fact that you want relationship with us is mind-blowing. Holy God, the creator of the universe that doesn't need anything, and yet you go to the most amazing relationship with a people who are difficult to love. Lord, we know that we are unlovable We know that we are weak. We know that we're rebellious, but I thank you for your grace. And I thank you that we can come to the table every time being reminded that and love us based on what we do or don't do. You don't look at us and love us based on where we've been, where we're going, what we know. That you base it off a promise that is obtained by Jesus Christ. So let us sit in that, rejoice in that, and Jesus, who has made it possible for us to be in relationship with you, and we pray that he'll return quickly, that we might enjoy your presence face to face. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.